a reading from the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. We know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In Susanna Clark's fantastic novel, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, we meet Mr. Norell as he emerges from the shadows of an isolated life of study, study and book reading as he's thrust into the circle of London's elite by way of performing a fantastical feat of magic. The magic that Norell performs is nothing less than raising a young woman from the dead. Of course, no one but Norell is aware that he did this not in his own magical power, but rather through his magicianly cleverness, or idiocy, depending on your perspective, he summoned an ancient fairy king and asked him to raise the girl to life. The fairy king did so, but of course there was a price to be paid for such work. So he took the young woman's pinky finger as a token that half of her life now belonged to him. And of course, Norell realizes far too late that he has been quite outwitted by the fairy king, though this fails to dislodge him from his petty self-centeredness. But suffice it to say, the resuscitated life of the young woman isn't exactly the miracle that everyone had hoped that it would be. I think there's a parallel here to some of the various permutations of Christianity that have arisen over the centuries. Lurking in the dark corners of various fundamentalisms is this idea that being a Christian is something like having your pinky removed and being returned to the world discomfited and depressed. It's like a weird resuscitation, but it's not really resurrection. 
Much of this misapprehension of what it means to be a Christian, I think, springs from an over-reliance upon the legal courtroom lens of salvation. If salvation is basically about justification, and justification is basically about being snatched away from a guilty verdict and awarded instead a verdict of, if not not guilty exactly, then at least not punished, and everything is viewed through the lens of justice, And in this courtroom scheme, the entire mechanism for salvation then is static. It's a work of legal maneuvering between a judge and a defendant. But what is the typical relationship between a judge and a defendant? It's potentially adversarial for a limited time, followed by non-existence. There is no real relationship once the verdict is submitted. The juridical framework for understanding justification should not be dismissed entirely, but it needs to be relocated and recontextualized in a way that helps us understand how easy it is for us to miss the main point of Christ's work in undergoing death on our behalf. After all, St. Paul does not say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that person is legally exempt from punishment. In fact, if we attend to his language here in 2 Corinthians, we can see just how backward we tend to understand what word God is speaking to the world in Christ. If you'll notice in our 2 Corinthians lesson, Paul talks about reconciliation three times. And every single time he says the word reconciliation in a specific way, he he says, be reconciled to God, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. God doesn't reconcile himself to us. He reconciles us to himself. And I realize that this may seem nitpicky, but it is a huge Distinction, because somewhere along the line there came this misunderstanding of the Anselmian satisfaction theory of atonement, and we've all begun to assume that God is so steamed at human sin that somebody had to be killed just to sort of release some of that rage, right? But that is nothing more than an idolatrous God made in our own busted-up image. We are the ones who demand satisfaction. We are the ones who demanded a victim. We are the ones with blood on our hands. For too long, Christianity has been hijacked by the elder brother standing outside the party, glowering. For too long, we have been wagging our collective finger at our screw-up little brothers and reinventing a dad who will deal with them in the only way that we think they understand, punishment. But all along, the true story of Christianity is that we set ourselves against God and for so long have told ourselves lies about him that we cried out for a victim, for blood, for satisfaction, and God in his boundless love gave himself over to us. Jesus Christ, pure, holy, blameless, perfect. He didn't become sinful on our behalf. He became sin. He became the totality of our violence and rejection and alienation, dragging every last 
drop of it down into the darkness of his own death, making his life an offering for sin. But Christ's work of reconciliation goes beyond just the living. His Sabbath rest in the tomb was his raiding of the gates of Hades. As the Orthodox Church sings on Holy Friday, to earth hast thou come down, O Master, to save Adam, and finding, not finding him on earth, thou hast descended into hell, seeking him there. Christ is the reconciliation of all things. If you'll allow me an e-break, hard left turn, I want to spin out a little bit here to remind us of what St. Paul is up to in his letter to the church in Corinth. Paul has been setting about establishing his authority as an apostle, and he's doing so in contradistinction to the super-apostles that the Corinthians have been so gaga over. These super-apostles have all the marks of charismatic spiritual leaders with power and pizzazz, and Paul, on the other hand, is marked by suffering and weakness, and the Corinthians are struggling with this very thing. But St. Paul refuses to play into their vanity. He refuses to go along with right-handed power to flex his apostolic authority, and instead, he understands his ministry to be a treasure in an earthen vessel, and he links himself to Christ by way of his own suffering, hard-pressed but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, always carrying about in the body the death of our Lord Jesus. This is the true mark of apostolicity, not words of power, prophetic utterances, or ecstatic gifts of the Spirit. And it is in this context of Paul trying to help the Corinthians understand that Actually, his authority as an apostle is shown forth in his suffering, not hindered by it, that Paul describes himself as an ambassador, as speaking with the very voice of God, calling the world to reconciliation. And there are a couple of things to notice here, and they're both quite important. First, Paul is making theological statements about the apostolic church. When Paul says that he has been made an ambassador of Christ and that God is pleading through him, speaking to the world, he's telling us something about the nature of the church, not just what the mission of the church is, though of course he is also speaking of that. The mission of the church is to go about declaring and enacting the reconciling work of Christ. But Paul is also giving us a glimpse of what the church itself is, the mouthpiece of God in the world. There's a misconception in radical Protestantism that the church is at best a secondary issue, something important but not really on par with theology proper. But the way that Paul thinks about the church is much different. He understands the church to be the mystical body of Christ on earth. So to speak of Christ is to speak of his church, which means the church cannot be a less important thing to think about because it is the very body of Christ. The second thing to notice is that Paul is modeling for us what it looks like to be compelled by love. Paul is not seeking self-aggrandizement. He's not seeking power over other people. He has been met with a love so otherworldly 
a love that from the beginning was drawing Christ into flesh, into death, a love that was unwilling to let a wayward and rebellious humanity carry on a breakneck speed toward total self-destruction, a love that threw itself into our self-destructive path, bringing about a new creation. And in response to this love, Paul goes about as the refuse of the world, filled with joy and peace. For St. Paul, the reality that God has burned up all of his records of human sin isn't something to shrug at. Paul has become incandescent, practically self-immolated, as he latches on to the deep abiding love of God shown forth in the face of Jesus Christ. As St. John Chrysostom said, in the face of such love to sin is to punish ourselves. If we have truly glimpsed the love of God, who though he was the one forsaken and aggrieved by us, was the first to reach out toward us in reconciliation, then sin is unmasked as the insanity that it truly is. And understanding how deeply we have harmed our relationship with him who is love is its own pain and punishment. This is a far cry from the Christianity that Flannery O'Connor saw on display in American culture. As she wrote of one of her characters, he knew the surest way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. No, friends. This is a love that has the power of new creation. Let us be embraced by it, even if it consumes us with its fire. And if you'll allow me a coda, we are emerging into a world that is drastically different from the one that we inhabited prior to the pandemic outbreak. We have been made uncomfortably aware of the limitations of our technology and the degradation of our culture that may have escaped our notice over the past few decades is now unavoidably on display with frightening violence and acute anxiety. As I've said to you repeatedly over the last several months, we are living in an era of dehumanization and polarization. Our culture has lost all sense of the value and inherent worth on display in each unique human person. We have ceased to be curious about one another, to care for one another. We have lost all sense of responsibility for one another. We are fractured and fatigued, anxious and angry. And I will remind you again that we have an enemy. And it's not the person on Facebook who believes in every crackpot conspiracy theory. And it's not the person who refuses to believe in my very sensible conspiracy theory. <laughs> Our enemy is not any other person on this planet. Our enemy is the accuser, the evil one, the devil who has seeked to lock everything in death. And the way that we are fraying apart our disintegration, violence, and fear, these are all heavy-hitting classics of our enemy's playbook.
And when I consider how many Christian communities have become little more than echoes of the politicization and disintegration so prevalent in our culture, I am overcome with gratitude and joy and a certain sense of fatherly pride that our parish, you, have maintained the bonds of love. That in this place, peace has prevailed over fear and that faith, hope, and love remain. I wrote all of this before Javier died. And if you didn't know him, I can tell you that he embodied all of those things. He himself was incandescent with the love of Christ. So I'll read to you what I wrote even before any of this happened. I encourage you, do not lose heart. Do not miss the miracle of reconciliation that is taking place in your midst. I know that you are tired. I know that you feel the overwhelm. Not just of this most present grief, but of all of the smaller griefs that have come along. I'd like to close with the prayer of St. Gregory. And as I do so, my prayers that the memory of Javier Garcia will be eternal. Grant us to pass through all the night of this present life with vigilant heart and sober thought, awaiting the coming of the radiant and manifest day of your only begotten Son, our Lord and God and Savior Jesus Christ, on which the judgment of all men shall come with glory when to each man shall be given the reward to his deeds. May we not fall and become lazy, but instead have courage that being roused to action, we may be found ready to enter into the joy and the divine bride chamber of his glory, where the voice of those who feast is unceasing and the gladness of those who behold the goodness of your countenance is unending. For you are the true light who enlightens and sanctifies all things, and all creation sings your praise forever.